Our scripture passage today is the second chapter of Exodus. These are great chapters, <laughs> fascinating, <laughs> full of actual historical information and truths that we don't often think about. And so let us stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking along the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. She had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. She had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labor and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with one another. And he said to the offender, Why are you striking your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. 
Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherd. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you've left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have seen, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it came about in the course of those day, many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry for help uh, because of their bondage rose up to God. For God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. You may be seated. Let's very quickly review on what the book of Exodus is about. The book of Exodus is about redemption. And redemption has two parts to it. One part is deliverance. Deliverance from sin and death and slavery. And the other part is judgment. That God delivers his people by judging and putting an end to their enemies. And once that deliverance has taken effect and judgment has been felt, then two things start to take shape. One, the Israelites start to see God's promises being fulfilled abundantly all through their land. And we saw that particularly last week. That specific promises that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were starting to be fulfilled in Moses' life and in the life of the Israelites. The number of the Israelites began to increase phenomenally, and their prosperity began to increase. And God began to bless them on uh, everything they did. And then something else takes effect once you're delivered from your sins and Judgment is upon your enemy, and we didn't talk about this last week. But once deliverance is, is done and judgment is, is on the heads of their enemies, and God's blessings begin to fall upon his people, a theocracy begins to form. Now, theocracy is a great word. It sounds so intellectual, so philosophical. But it is a great word, and it's made up of two words. Theos, which is the Greek word for God, and the other word is the word for power and authority and government. So uh, a theocracy is a society and a nation and a people 
governed by God's word. Consciously seeing God as the final authority over everything they do. So that all of the families become theocracies. So that every family in, in, uh, among the people of God consciously live under God's government. So everything about their society is de dedicated to the authority and to the government of Almighty God. We'll see that more and more as time goes on in the book of Exodus. But it already begins to take shape in the first chapter of Genesis. We see that uh, the Hebrews had backslidden somewhat. That they had imitated the Egyptians in their worship practices and in some of their immoral standards. But not all of them. There were still many faithful Hebrew people like the two midwives. You remember the two nurses that would help the Hebrew women have babies. And Pharaoh was getting worried about how rapidly the Hebrews were growing and he saw them as a threat. They're growing in wealth, they're growing in land, they're growing in numbers, and if there was ever an enemy nation to come in and attack the Egyptians, these Hebrews would probably join with the enemy against us. So Pharaoh was worried about the situation and decided to, uh, to solve it by killing all the little boy babies. And so he asked these two women, make sure that when you deliver babies for Hebrew women, that the boys are killed. And so time went by, and uh, the women, the midwives, were not killing the little boys. So Pharaoh found out about it. Pharaoh said, why are you not killing the Hebrew boys like I told you? Oh, the Hebrew women are just, they have babies so rapidly that we don't get to them before they have these babies. So we would, we would if we were there. Right. And uh, God blessed these two ladies for lying and for disobeying the law. Because in a theocracy where God is the final rule, God's law is the final law. You obey that law over every other law. Whatever other law you have to disobey, you obey God. That's a theocracy. And so these little ladies, God blessed them. God got them husbands. God gave them families. And God blessed their lives because they were not afraid to stare down the most powerful man on earth and to lie to the Pharaoh and to disobey his law. You say, well, it, it, didn't they sin? I thought we're not supposed to sin. We are not supposed to sin. Are we, well, didn't they break one of the Ten Commandments? Which one of the Ten Commandments they break? Think of a command, one of the Ten Commandments, these little ladies broke. They didn't break any Ten Commandments. 
they obeyed the ninth commandment that said don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't use your tongue to injure your brother. So they lied to the Pharaoh. So there were still some faithful people among the Israelites. And now in this particular chapter, which is a fascinating chapter, we see God preparing Moses to be the leader of the Hebrew people. We see more information about what a real theocracy, what a society governed by God and his word really looks like. And this is a great chapter. There's one thing you find out in this second chapter of, of uh, Exodus. You find the prominence of Moses in the Old Testament. He stands out. They're always talking about him. They're always singing psalms about him. They're always praising God for him. That Moses is a prominent figure in the Old Testament because he prefigures Christ himself. You remember what a type is, T-Y-P-E. A type is a person or an event that God has caused to happen in such a way that that person or that event will remind you of something in Jesus' life later on. And that's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed that type or that figure is supposed to remind you of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many of the ways that uh, the Bible in the Old Testament talks about coming Christ and redemption is in terms of Moses. I just want to read you some verses. Just write these down. They're worth writing, reading. I want you to read some verses that describe Messianic prophecy. And notice how many of them are spoken of in terms of Moses. So here we have in uh, Hosea chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Hosea 12, 12 and 13. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife, and for a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet, the Lord, Moses, the Lord brought Israel from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was kept. So here the, there's a, this description of the Messiah that's coming. And he's going to have the same type of prominence and ministry that Moses had as the first and the great prophet delivering Egypt. From their sins. Or in Deuteronomy 18, 18, God says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So once again, in the fifth book of the Bible, we see that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is described in terms of of a great prophet that has the words of God in his mouth, just like it described Moses. Isaiah 10, 26. 
and the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and his staff will be over the sea. Who else put his staff over the sea? Moses, the Red Sea. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So Jesus is going to command the waves and everything about life just like Moses did when he destroyed Egypt and delivered Israel. So he's quite a figure to be that important so that they describe the work of Jesus in terms of Moses. And notice the similarities between Moses' life and Jesus' life. See if you can think how, how many we just read today uh, at their birth. Anything similar in Moses' birth and Jesus' birth? Both of them were born in obscurity. One of them had a wicker basket, and the other was in a, a place where they kept animals. They both, their lives were threatened when they were little babies. Pharaoh tried to kill Moses. Herod tried to kill uh, the Hebrew boys and Jesus. They were rejected by their very people. That when Moses was trying to rescue the Hebrew from somebody harming him, the people criticized Moses, rejected his authority over them. And Jesus, the Bible says in John, he came into his own, and his own would have nothing to do with him. We see that Moses is a mediator. He's the mediator of the Old Covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the New so there's a great many similarities between these two men on purpose so that when people looked at Moses, it would teach them things about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now let's see, what, what are some things that happened here in this second chapter? Turn there with me. It says in verse 1, there was a man from the house of Levi, went and married a daughter of Levi. Oh, no. Are we talking about incest again? No, I mean, there were all kinds of Levites. This was a big family. This was a, uh, many, many years and generations since uh, Jacob blessed Levi. So here this man married a daughter from the tribe of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch so that it would be waterproof. Then she put the child into it, 
and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile River. Little Moses. And his sister stood at a distance. Find out what would happen to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking along the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. So here's the beginning of Moses' life in danger. The mother breaks the law. Hebrew boys are supposed to be killed. She is not going to kill the Hebrew boy. So she puts him in a wicker basket, hides him among the reeds, so that she would be safe from Pharaoh's bloodthirstiness. And his sister stood a little farther over in the reeds, making sure he was okay and nothing was wrong with him. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the reeds to bathe, as she usually did, had all her maidens with her. And she saw this wicker basket among the reeds and told her maidens to go and get it for her. She wanted to see what's in the basket. When she opened it, to her amazement, she saw this little boy. And behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. How'd she know that? Circumcised. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go call a nurse for you among the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? This little girl has already set up everything. The mother's in the background. The mother of the little boy. And she says to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, do you want me to get some uh, Hebrew woman to nurse this little boy? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I shall give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Picture a little Hebrew boy in a basket put in the Nile River to keep Pharaoh from killing him. By chance. Chance, you think it was by chance? Pharaoh's daughter comes walking by taking her morning bath. Wasn't by chance. Moses' sister's over here taking good care of him. And then the sister 
glances at the basket, opens it. To her shock, there was a little Hebrew boy. That's what uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, had already set up everything for. So he says to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like for me to go get a Hebrew woman to be his nurse? I just happened to have one. And she just happened to be his mother. And so Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, that would be great. Go get that woman and, and I'll pay her. So here Moses' mother gets paid for nursing her son. Now, what do you see in and behind all this stuff? Sovereign hand of Almighty God. God's in charge of everything that's happened. We saw that in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And now in the life of Moses, Moses uh, was so fragile he could have died at any moment, gotten killed at any moment in those early days of his life. God was watching over him. God was causing one of the most powerful women in all of Egypt to make sure he had a nurse and to make sure that nurse was well paid by Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 10. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. So Moses' mother took care of him. Moses' mother taught him. Moses' sister took care of him the wealthiest young woman in the country of Egypt took care of him until he grew up. Verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his brethren. Now things are starting to change. He's a grown man. He's been raised by a godly woman and by a pagan. He's been given the greatest education anybody could ever have. He was homeschooled in the Christian faith by his own mother. And he was given the greatest education Egypt could afford. Now imagine what he was taught. He was taught by his mother about God's covenant, about the sovereignty of God, about the coming of Messiah, about the authority of God's word, about the nature of redemption, the nature of theocracy. And he was taught by Pharaoh's daughter and by all the other philosophers and professors in Pharaoh's palace about literature, architecture, art, and every other subject you could imagine. Remember, this guy is going to be the leader 
of God's covenant people. This guy is going to have the most responsible uh, uh, work to do in the Old Testament times. There was nobody in the Old Testament like Moses. And if he's going to lead God's people through the thick and the thin of everything that's going to happen, this man had to know what he was talking about. He had to have a great education. He had it. Forty years, he was taught by his mother and by the best that money could afford in the educational system of Egypt. There was a third teacher that he had. Remember who that was? We'll get to it. He had a third teacher that taught him some of the best things he ever learned. And if he hadn't learned these things and taught them himself, there never would have been a United States. And there never would have been a Presbyterian church. In many ways, this third teacher was more important than the other two. So, he's learning to be a leader. And he sees... One of his brothers in Christ, a fellow Hebrew, getting beat up by an Egyptian. Verse 12. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian, hit him in the sand. Looking around, make sure nobody's watching. Now, I've heard sermons about preachers criticizing Moses for beating up this Egyptian. The Bible says in Acts 7 and Hebrews 11 that he did it by faith, that he was acting as somebody who understood God's theocracy. God's theocracy says that when you see a weaker person being beaten up by a stronger person, even at the risk of your own life, you go protect the, the weaker person. You fight for the weaker person's life. You don't let him get beat up by the Egyptian. He was acting in faith. He was acting in obedience to the law of God. So don't everybody let anybody tell you that Moses was sinning when he beat up this, well, we'll say, when he beat to death this Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Wasn't doing anything sinful at all. He was protecting his brother. Verse 13. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offenders, why are you striking your companion? Why are you all in a fight? We're brothers. We're in the same covenant. What are we doing? What are you all doing fighting each other? Like a great leader. 
But he said, who made you a prince or a judge? Are you intending to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Now, uh, have you ever had two children, your children? And one of them tells the other child what to do. And the one that's being told what to do says, who do you think you are telling me what to do? You my boss? That's what this Hebrew was doing. He was acting out of pure envy. He uh, was extremely envious of Moses and had not yet accepted the fact that God had appointed him to be the leader of the people of God. So you can see where envy will get you. Verse 14, he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And said, surely the matter has become known. Everybody's talking about this. And verse 15, when, Mo uh, when Pharaoh heard of the matter, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. By the way, that well's still there. Okay. What will envy do? What, what is envy? Envy is something that's far more wicked than jealousy. Envy, is, jealousy is when you're jealous that somebody has something you don't have. Envy is far more wicked than that. Envy says, if you have something I don't have, I'm going to make sure you don't have it anymore. I'm going to take it from you. So these Hebrews refused to admit Moses' leadership over them. God appointed leadership. God's theocratic leadership. Because of their envy. And what happened as a result of their envy? They had to stay in slavery 40 more years. They would rather have 40 more years of slavery than 40 years of freedom under God's appointed representative. Does that sound like America? Americans live by envy. There's a book called Envy, which describes uh, the basic drive and motive of Americans today. That Americans are so envious that they would rather have 40 more years of slavery than 40 years of freedom in a theocracy. where we are. That's where they were.
Which would you rather have? Would you rather have 40 years of socialism and welfareism and Biden economics and everything else we have today? Or would you rather have 40 years of freedom under God's law and under Christians who will obey that law? So a very similar situation here. So Moses is 40 years old and he flees to Midian. Midian is out in Saudi Arabia. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and Water the flock. Why did they say that about Moses? Because he was dressed like an Egyptian. He was dressed like Pharaoh's son. Gold, silk, cotton, bald head, bald-faced. He looked like an Egyptian. So they assumed he was. And verse 20, and he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why didn't you invite him home for supper? And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. See where Moses' heart was? His heart was not in the Pharaoh's palace. His heart was in the promised land. Verse 23, and it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry to help because their bondage rose up to God. So, so here Moses now is out in the uh, desert of Midian, hot, dry, and he meets this priest from Midian. What in the world priest was he? He wasn't a member of Abraham's family. He wasn't a Levitical priest. So what in the world was this priest of Midian named Jethro? I have no idea. But he knew God. And his understanding of God was not perfect. But he did understand God. And he understood what it meant to live under God's rule. So, that was a very important day for Moses. He got two things. He got one of the greatest teachers in the world, and he got a great wife. 
And we'll talk more about Zipporah a little later. She was a powerful woman and a godly woman. And Jethro was his teacher. So now, how many years of education did Moses have? He had 40 years of education under his mother. He had 40 years of education in the palace of Pharaoh. So 40 years. And he had 40 years of education under Jethro. And you complain that you got 12 years education. <laughs> 80 years he had. Moses was educated for 80 years. His mother, by Pharaoh's wife, daughter, and by Jethro. Uh, now, there's several reasons why he was taught by Jethro. We'll, we'll learn more about Jethro after a while, another day. But uh, why was he taught so long by Jethro out there in the Midian Desert? Forty years. Unlearn what he'd learned the previous 40 years in Pharaoh's palace. That's what I had to do. I went to, uh, to public school for 12 years. I went to a liberal college for four years. I went to a liberal seminary graduate school for three more years, and everything I know good, I've learned since. <laughs> and I've had to unlearn the things that I learned in, in, in uh, humanistic schools. Same with you, I hope you understand that. Particularly you men that are middle-aged, particularly any of you all that did not go to a Christian school, you went to a public school, I hope you understand that you got a lot of work to do unlearning what you learned in public schools. Unlearning what you learned in college. Because what you learned in public schools and what you learned in college was not true. You got a lot of information, but I can truthfully say at the 12 years I was in public schools, I don't remember reading a book. And the seven years I was in college and seminary, college, four years in college, I don't remember reading a book. And so one of the greatest joys of my life has been unlearning most of the stuff that I learned when I was in humanistic schools. I can say truthfully to any of you people that went to public schools that if you don't recognize that you have a lot of things to unlearn, don't have a Christian worldview. Simple as that. So get busy. Hopefully it'll take you less than 80 years. 
But it took Moses 40 more years to unlearn what he learned in Pharaoh's schools. Now, Jethro told him two things, taught him two things, that if Jethro had not taught him, here's this guy that lives out in the Midian, out in the desert. Uh, if Jethro had not taught him two things, which we'll come to later, there never would have been a United States and there never would have been a Presbyterian church. And that is not an exaggeration. Because what Jethro taught Moses about a theocracy is that it's got to be representative government. It can't be one-man rule. It's got to be a, a, a civil government ruled by representatives elected by the people. Moses learned that from Jethro. That's the basis of the United States Constitution. And he told, he also taught Moses that in a theocracy that's, that uh, encourages freedom, there must be gradation of courts. That you don't just have one court, that you don't just have one judge, you have a system of courts. So there can be appeal from a lower court to a higher court whenever justice is not done. It's the basis of Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism says that each congregation is not isolated and independent from all other congregations. That congregations are connected to each other so that if somebody does not get justice in the session in the local church, he can go to Presbytery and get justice in Presbytery. And if he doesn't get justice in Presbytery, he can go to the General Assembly. That's the heart of Presbyterianism. So Moses didn't learn that from John Calvin. Moses learned that from Jethro of Midian. Hardly anybody's ever heard about. Now why do we believe Jethro? Believe Jethro because we're going to see as the Bible goes on Jethro is teaching Moses these things with the authority of God. And God is always to be obeyed. And one last thing. And it's a great thing. Why did God come to Israel's rescue during the days of Moses. What was it that moved the great heart of God to deliver Israel from slavery? 
Let's look at verses 23 and following. Now it came about in the course of those many days, the king of Egypt died. Sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel and God took notice of them. Three things. First reason why God came to their rescue was that he heard their groaning and he had mercy on them. God's merciful heart was moved to rescue these people that were groaning in slavery. So that's the first first reason. God's mercy moved his heart to relieve them of the misery of slavery. Second, God's faithfulness to the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here again we see that there's no dichotomy between the Mosaic covenant and the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's all one. They're both covenants of grace. It's not that the covenant with Abraham is a covenant of grace and Moses is his covenant of law. They're both covenants of grace. And that grace is received by faith alone. So Moses, God's second reason is faithfulness. God's faithful to this people that he entered into a covenant with. A covenant bond that included communion of life and a sovereignly dictated order of life in which God would be their God and they would be his people down through thousands of generations. That's what the story's about. That's what the Bible's about. Third, First thing that moved God's heart was mercy. And the second thing was in verse 24. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then this is a pathetic translation of the Hebrew in the New American Standard. The third reason says, And God saw the sons of Israel... And what it says in Hebrew, and you can see in this margin, God saw the sons of Israel and God knew them. Doesn't say God took notice of them. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm watching y'all. God knew them. For the life of me, I can't understand why English translators of the Hebrew can't get the word no straight. The word no in Hebrew mean, doesn't mean take notice of. It doesn't mean to intellectually apprehend. 
It means to set your affection on. It means to love. You remember the story of Adam and Eve. It says that Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. If all he did was to notice her, she would never have conceived. But it means Adam knew his wife. Adam made her the object of his loving affections. And she conceived. And that's why God wanted to rescue Israel. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of faithfulness. And he loves his people. And he loves you. And because he loved you, he is determined to save you from your sins. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this second chapter of Exodus and for all that it teaches us. Many things we didn't expect for it to teach us. We thank you for everything that it, is t it has taught us, particularly that last sentence, that our salvation and our redemption is rooted in your eternal love for us. And we thank you that that love produces love for you in us. We love because you first loved us. So may we be people whose hearts are filled with joy at your love for us and whose hearts are filled with a joy that produces joy for others, a love for others in our own hearts. Christ's sake. Amen.